Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for inviting us into a relationship with you, God. What an encouragement it is to be united with you. As we live in this world and as we continue to live faithfully, trying to follow you, God, help us with endurance and courage because that's what we need today. We need to be um, courageous with our faith, courageous in how we continue to put one step in front of the other because, God, you know, we need it. We need it in this crazy, divided world. Lord, I ask for a motivation of love that we are able to find reconciliation with those who stand against us. And God, for, for those individuals who are wrestling with division and disunity today, Lord, bring harmony, bring peace. The, the culture wars around us has caused that harmony and peace. It, it's made it harder to grasp. It slips easier out of our hands more frequently. And God, it, it's so unobtainable without you. So encourage us to this end. God, there are others here who, who know that the decisions that they make, the conversations that they have to have will divide them with others. But Lord, as those decisions are being made, as those conversations are being had, whether those decisions and conversations are in regards to buying a house or changing careers or adopting or fostering or starting new business or moving cross country, perhaps even sharing their faith with somebody who's far from you, Lord, I ask that you give them wisdom. Let your wisdom permeate through their decision making, fill their conversations and debates with love and care. God, we want your mindset of humility today, a mindset of servitude. We want to be in unison with you, with your spirit, not conceited with our own ambitions and our own achievements, but united in heart and mind with your own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few months ago, a moral psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, he wrote this in The Atlantic. The story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America this fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another. It's been clear for quite a while now that Red America and Blue America are becoming like two different countries claiming the same territory with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. But Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid, the scattering of the people who had been a community. It's a metaphor for what is happening not only between red and blue, but within the left and within the right, as well within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families. All that to conclude is that we're living in a ridiculous, dysfunctional, and unsustainably divided society. And if it continues unchecked and unmitigated, our society will collapse just like the city of Babel did in Genesis 11. So the question that we are faced with and that we have to answer is this, how can we truly experience unity despite our differences? How can we truly experience unity despite our differences? And I know that's a loaded question. And it's a loaded question because well, guess what? When you talk to anybody, even your spouse even, you can have this long conversation thinking you're talking about the same thing, but you find out that you, you're really on two different pages. That what he or she believed has nothing to do with what you were even saying. And that you were agreeing to things that you never thought yourself that you would even agree to because you were talking about two different things, even though you're speaking one language or supposedly so there's really two ways, historically and socially, that we can actually see that where we can find unity as a culture, as a people. And those two ways are either through consensus or through solidarity. And here's the difference between the two. 
Consensus is cheap. Consensus is cheap, right? It's simply about a good faith effort to find a place that's comfortable for two or more parties. And really the thinking of consensus is this. It's thinking we, if it only benefits me, that's consensus, right? And we see this a lot in politics, right? We see this in business. We see this making deals. We find consensus to make deals, right? It's basically a temporary truce. But solidarity, on the other hand, it costs something because solidarity requires us to tie the well-being of somebody who's not us to our own, right? Solidarity doesn't change because our well-being is directly correlated with the well-being of another human being. That's what solidarity is. So the thinking of solidarity is we and not me. There's a difference in thought there. And so in acts of kindness or or relationships between parent and child, we see this most frequently, at least healthy relationships, right? And the reason our culture is so divided today is because we've learned to pattern our notions of unity after consensus instead of solidarity. And so we see as a result people vomiting social norms or what were social norms because they are no longer acceptable to themselves, those norms are now deviant behaviors. And so people on the internet, they can find anyone who's in agreement with them. And so whatever is acceptable and normal is now deviant depending on which subgroup we're a part of. And the consensus that we once had in society is a bunch of splinter groups trying to vie for attention and vie for recognition. And this is no different in our faith, in the Christian faith. And we see people who claim to follow Jesus And say these things and say, post these Bible verses, but they don't follow Jesus. And they speak loud and they're obnoxious. And and people from the outside look in saying, look what's wrong with all you Christians. When it doesn't represent us as a whole. And, And so we're scattered already like the people of battle. We're there. We're scattered, right? And You know, this is where we are, and this is where the Corinthian church finds itself in verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians 10 through 17, read it with me. Because what we're trying to do is foster unity amongst a very diverse people group. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean by that is this. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of elegant wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So let's cut to the chase. The chase is this, right? In the first century, and this applies in the first century just like it applies to us, the point that Paul is making is that God's people are not divided. God's people are not divided. We cannot be divided. Did you know, did you know that there are 45,000 plus Christian denominations in the world today? 
45,000 different types of Christians. And I'm not even call, you know, considering the Christian cults. 45,000. That, that's an amazing number. And so, you know, a denomination, for those of you who grew up in a non-denominational church like Woodside, right? It's a group of churches simply marked by differences in name, polity, or doctrines. And what that boils down to is denominations just differ on how they follow Jesus. What, what they believe in, how they follow Jesus. That, that's, that's what a denomination is. So let me name a few denominations because I think all of you are familiar with them. Baptists, Presbyterian, Methodists, Lutherans, Mennonites, Christian assemblies, right? That's just some. And so basically what Christians have done in history is they've learned to differentiate themselves from other Christians through denominations, right? And so, you know, they're in one denomination until they can no longer find unity and consensus in that denomination. And so they divide off in the name of peace and unity with those who are the like same mind and the same thoughts, right? And that's what happens, right? And so non-denominational churches like Woodside, for example, right? We do this too. We say that our distinctives at Woodside as a non-denominational church is so distinct that it doesn't fit neatly into one denomination or another. And we welcome all people from all denominations as long as you worship just like we do right? In unity and the same mind and same spirit, right? And what we have to understand though is in all of that, in all of that is that people are people are people. We all sin and we fall short of the glory of God, right? So we, we, we look and we see that this is our legacy and we start wondering, well, how did this legacy come about? And that takes us to church history because I did some research on church history, right? So did you know that after Jesus died and was resurrected, there was just one church? Did everybody know that there was one church? There are no such things at denominations. There's none of that. For 1,000 years, there was one church, the church of Jesus, right? And so at 1054 AD, there was a split, right? That the churches that were in the west side of the Roman Empire split from the churches that were part of the east side of the Roman Empire, right? That the churches of the east are now called the Orthodox churches, right? That the churches on the west became the Roman Catholic Church, Right, 1054. And what happened was, until that time, for an entire millennia, for a thousand years, they were in consensus with one another. They're like, okay, I can agree with you. And at 1054, something happened. They were like, you know what? We don't agree anymore. Let's split. We're going to split because that's the only way we can maintain peace. And so that's what they did. And so the, the Orthodox Church, until the fall of Constantinople in, in 1453, it was just one big church. And then after it fell, after the Ottoman Empire fell, you know what? There was 23 new denominations that formed out of that. That's not bad, right? That's not bad. We, we basically went from one church to two churches to now 23 plus a Catholic church, right? And then in 1517, in 1517, here's what happened in 1517, right? The onset of the Gutenberg Press, Martin Luther, a priest in the Catholic church in Germany, decided, you know what? He's tired of seeing his church sell indulgences to pay for a building project, right? He didn't want to see his church pay for an expensive building and pay for the lavish salaries and lifestyles of these priests in Germany. And he, you know what? He nailed 95 theses up to a Catholic church and said, you know what? It's over. We're dividing. This is wrong. And so many of us here in this room, we're a product of that reformation. Because he said, you know what? Each person has direct access to God. We can read for ourselves what the Bible says. And so we have 40,000 so odd denominations later, more and more interpretations on how they want to follow Jesus. 
right? That, that, that's our church history. We divide and we continue to divide because it's easier to divide and be at peace in some type of consensus than it is to have unidir- solidarity with one another, right? And so Gordon-Conwell Seminary, they, they estimate this, that there's a new denomination forming every 10 to 11 hours a day. So what are we at, 45,000 denominations, 45,000 church splits, right? Now there's every 11 hours a new denomination, a new group of church that says the old way is wrong. We're going to do it a new way because our way is better, and we have unity in that. And so, you know, with two and a half denominations forming every day, what's really going on? Are we united or are we split? Or are we united in our splitting, right? That, that's what it is. So on a macro level, when we look at church history, we can see that consensus really doesn't produce anything besides division, right? And Paul is urging the Corinthians, you know what? That, that's what consensus is. It only works till someone believes it doesn't work anymore. And on a micro level, we, we know that consensus is not going to work in our lives because really the only lasting unity that we have is to be tied down to our spouse. And even that, that's a question most days when we wake up, isn't it? We don't want to be tied down to our spouse or our kids. We don't even want to be tied down with that property line with the neighbors next to us, right? They're driving our property values down. And so we we have this idea, right, that we're only going to walk with people until it becomes inconvenient to walk with them. And we we, we frame it as seasons of life. I, I love seasons of life. Except when we say goodbye, we know it's not a season. It's not a season because we've said goodbye and you're never, ever getting back together. You can quote Taylor Swift, right? That, that's who said it. it. It's true. And so, you know, some of us, we complain. We complain loudly. We're lonely. We're alone. We're walking. We're disconnected. But we've made it that way. We've made it that way. And if that's you, aim bigger, right? Aim bigger. We, we need to aim for solidarity. That, that's what we're called to do. Solidarity is true unity. Uh, you know, when we tie our well-being with the well-being of others we experience something. We experience what Jesus experienced on the cross. We experience what Jesus modeled for us 2,000 years ago. Let's look at verse 10 again, because this is the argument Paul is making here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so Paul is talking about the marks of solidarity, that there's no divisions, that, there, that people are united with the si- same mind and judgment. And, you know, honestly, the ESV, it, it kind of shortchanges what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the Greek when he says, be united. Because what, what we see in the Greek word, katartizo, it, it emphasizes a level of unity, a level of unity that means perfect unity. It's a perfect unity, right? It's, it's something that's just beyond normal unity. It goes way beyond that. And so when you have perfect unity, you must be in total agreement with no divisions, with the same mind and judgment. It's like you're one person, right? And the only way you can experience that is to be in solidarity with the people that you're united with, right? So the Apostle Paul wants us to be in perfect unity in the name of Jesus with everybody else who claim the name of Jesus, Right? He's saying, when you tie your well-being with somebody else, that's what makes you perfectly united with them. It's like a wedding vow, isn't it? Right? For better or worse, we're with you. And, and I mean, this is exactly the perfect unity that Christians must have. Right? We may not share the same viewpoints. We may not share the same opinions, experiences, skills, or giftings, or philosophies. But we are united with them because our Savior is united with us. 
And I want to make this distinction because some of you are thinking, well, how is this possible? Because you're thinking unity is uniformity, but unity is not uniformity, right? You and I can follow different people on TikTok or Instagram and still be united in Jesus, right? You can be Republican, I can be Democrat, and we can still be united in Jesus, right? You can be Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist or Pentecostal or call yourself whatever, and we could still be united in Jesus, We can be of different races and cultures and socioeconomic classes and still be united in Jesus. And this is the point that Apostle Paul is making, right? Even in our diversity, we are united not because of uniformity, but because of who Jesus is and what he did for us, right? That's what he's saying. That's what the ultimate point is. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And I love the sarcasm here. It's because he's trying to be sarcastic. You, you could probably imagine, right? Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, they all want to say, well, we follow Jesus because we're all disciples of Jesus. Right? And so people here, they're making distinctions based on arbitrary markers and traits, and they want to exclude other people based on those arbitrary markers and traits. That, that, that's what people do, right? And you know what? We call it uniqueness, being uniquely and wonderfully made. That's what we call it, right? We, we want to be set apart for something special, and so this is what we say is us and what defines us. But really, it comes down to pride, doesn't it? It comes down to pride. The Corinthians in their pride, hoping there's more status or more authority or more spiritual favor that comes from claiming consensus with one group of people or one person and then dividing up into factions. That's what they're doing here, right? When it's always been about what Jesus has done for all of us. This is Jesus, right? This is who they're talking about. Jesus, who was of God, who became man, who died for our sins, was resurrected in victory over sin and death. He unites us with God and reconciles us to our Father in heaven and restores us. To God. That's who we're united with, not these individual people who are all claiming the same thing, that that's what Jesus said. I want us to really let this sink in, right? Let this sink in. We divide and are divisive because we're prideful. We divide and are divisive because we are prideful. I mean, that's why consensus is all we can really muster in life. It's a temporary agreement. We can all agree to something that's temporary. It's why we don't want to tie ourselves down with the well-being of other people because we know that eventually they're going to bring us down. They're going to mess up us up, right? And pride, pride, that pride that we harbor, that's a sin, right? Pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. He, he wanted to be served. He wanted to be God, not serve God. He, he, he tells us and pride tells us that we deserve to be served, not to serve. But Jesus didn't redeem us. To be served, he redeemed us so that we can serve. And just even think about the last time that you had a falling out with somebody. Don't look at your spouses, right? Just think, right? When you get to the root cause of it, it wasn't because that was a bad idea or because you actually fought about something real. You you fought and you, you, you had this falling out because your pride told you not to give in. Your pride told you not to submit, not to humble yourself, not to serve that other person. And so what we find in pride is pride doesn't allow us to reconcile. Pride doesn't allow for restoration. And without reconciliation and restoration, we will never have perfect unity. Because you need reconciliation. You need restoration to have solidarity with those you are divided with. So we strive for perfect unity. 
and it's going to cause us to labor with one another for the same reconciliation and restoration Jesus demonstrates for us. And that can only happen when our pride dies. When our pride dies. So I want to ask you, church, are you willing to kill your pride? Are you willing to kill your pride for the sake of solidarity with others? And if the answer is yes, I want us to flip to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. I'm going to read verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. You kill pride in your life by having the same mind and judgment as Jesus, full of love, without ambition or conceit, humility, and counting others more significant than yourself. And so, you know, it wouldn't be me if I didn't give you a process where you can actually reconcile with others and bring solidarity, make it a reality in your life, right? So the process of reconciliation begins with acknowledging and mending what's been torn, right? That's what reconciliation is, right? It's acknowledging and mending what's been torn. And so in order for reconciliation to start, we have to suspend our self-interest because that's what pride is, self-interest. See, if we want perfect unity in your marriage, then we have to suspend self-interest. That's what makes a marriage work, that you constantly are selfless. That, that's what makes it work. That's what makes any relationship work, that we become selfless. We become servants of those on the other side of it, and we start asking, well, what's in his or her best interests? And, and that's hard. That's really hard, and we know it's hard because the night Jesus was betrayed, he, he was praying to God, God, remove the cup of cru crucifixion from him. And he was having a hard time suspending his self-interest. That's why he prayed it, right? Jesus didn't want to die a horrific death for you and me on the side of a highway, stripped naked, knowing for God, God knows how long on, on there with nothing, waiting to die. I mean, who wants that? Who wants that? Right? And Jesus didn't want to lose his connection with the Father. Why? Why would he want to take on punishment for things that he didn't do? But Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to suspend my self-interest. And in the end, he, he submitted to the Father by saying, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus went willingly to the cross. Willingly. And so what we find is that when Jesus went willingly to the cross, what he did was he started to own the division. He owned the division that we had between us and God. He owned our sin. He was punished for our sins. He owned it in every single sin that we committed, past, present, and future. He owned and said, this is me. This is mine. And he bore the punishment for those sins. He owned those sins. And so the very thing that separated us from God, he took on and said, this is mine. This is mine. And Jesus wouldn't be our, with, wouldn't be our redeemer without him owning those divisions, would he? He could not redeem us if he didn't own those things. And so with the goal of reconciliation, he put himself through pain. And when we say we're going to own the divisions, the things that divide you and me, we are going to be hurt, just like Jesus was hurt. But it's absolutely necessary because when we extend ourselves this way, when we're willing to tie our well-being with another person, it's not symbolic. It's an act of solidarity. It's two people who are once divided being united because you were willing to serve that other person. You see, when we own the division, then we can start walking in their shoes also. 
we can start walking in their shoes, right? That's the only way we can really be reconciled, right? We can only restore the relationship to the glory that God intended if we know how the other person is walking. And so look again, because Paul explains the model that Jesus gives us to the Philippian church, because the Philippian church was having the same problems, right? To, to kill pride and to seek reconcil- reconciliation, he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, have this mind amongst yourselves. It's yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus came to walk on the earth for you and me, fragile, vulnerable, afflicted, impacted, affected by society and culture. He took his own shoes off first. Jesus let go of his everything so he could walk in our shoes. This is what Jesus did, right? He walked in our shoes even though he didn't have to. He was God. He didn't need to be subjected to what he was created, but he did. And so what it doesn't mean to actually take off our shoes, it means that we take our ambitions, our vulnerabilities, our fears, our skills, strengths, issues, and pressures, those things that puff us up in pride, and we lay them all down, and we say no more. And we we, we take off our own shoes first so that we can walk in the shoes of others and explore life as those who are divided against us. That's how you kill pride in your heart. So in order to walk in other people's shoes, we have to first literally take off our shoes and start experiencing the world as they experience it. And I want to ask, church, is that our posture between Sundays? Is that our posture when we leave this place? Because if it's not, I'm going to ask you, who are you following? Because Jesus took off his own shoes to walk with us. I'm going to tell you, if you can't take off your own shoes and suspend your own self-interest, and if you don't own the division yourself, then at best, all you can do with the people around you and divided against you is to sympathize for them. But sympathy never solved any problems. Sympathy never did anything except make you waste your emotional energy on sorrow and sadness, right? If you want to be in perfect unity with somebody, you have to empathize with them. You have to understand and feel and think about a situation the way they do. That that's what it means to attach your well-being with another person. Let's pick it up in verse 14 in 1 Corinthians. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul baptized three people, or at least the households of three people. And I'm going to explain who these three people are because what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to get people to to see, right, that the divisions that they've created are kind of ridiculous, that they don't really mean anything. And what he does is he uses three well-known people in the Corinthian church. So Crispus, right, according to Acts 18, was a chief Jewish synagogue leader. And he was one of the first converts Paul had to Christianity in his missionary journey. And as a result of his Converting to Christianity, a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people in Corinth also converted to Christianity as a result, right? So you could say that this guy started the movement. Gaius, right, according to to Romans 16, he was the host of the Corinthian church, right? Churches back then, they didn't meet in great large places like our church does right now. They met in homes. And Gaius was the guy who opened up his home so that the church can worship God and meet together. And so it's much like our life groups today. Stephanus, right, according to 1 Corinthians 16, he, he was a foreigner. He didn't actually belong to the Corinthian church. And, and you know, the, the Corinthians kind of ostracized him and said, you know what, you're not one of us. But Stephanus 
despite all of that, said, you know what, I'm going to serve you anyway. And he did so generously, giving of his time and of his money. And that's what 1 Corinthians says, right? And so you have these three people who are well-known by the church who are saying, you know what? We follow Jesus. We're united in that fact. What are we really arguing about? And so, you know, in mentioning these three families and mentioning this point, Paul is saying, you know what? I'm going to own this torn relationship. If I'm the one that caused the problem, okay, I'm going to fix it because I really didn't do any of that. That wasn't my purpose. So he continues in verse 17. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, reconciliation, knowing, owning these problems and the torn stuff is not enough. Perfect unity requires us to restore the relationship, right? So we turn to the one and only Christ to restore the relationship because we can't do it on our own. We know it. Verse 17, when we look at it, Paul starts to dispel any notion that baptism is regeneration or salvation itself, right? Being baptized doesn't give us eternal life. It doesn't give us restoration and reconciliation with God. A person needs to accept the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross in order for that to happen. The power of God is anchored in receiving the gospel, not being baptized by a certain person. And so baptism, what that means is baptism is a response to receiving the gospel. We respond to the gospel by publicly declaring our faith in Jesus signifying and sealing our adoption to Christ. And if you receive the gospel but have not been baptized, then make that something that you do in response to faith, to show the world that you are reconciled and restored to God. Right? You can email us. You can message us. You can testify to the power of God in your life through the gospel. And Paul just points to the cross of Jesus because he knows that's where reconciliation is. He knows that's where restoration is. Jesus is the source of power that fuels Solidarity that fuels reconciliation. I love what he says that he came to preach the gospel not with words of eloquence, but just to say the facts that this is what Jesus did for me because he loves us. Because God restores to perfect unity through his son. Family, this is what the gospel is. Right? That God in his mercy and grace sent his one and only son to take on the form of man to live amongst us a perfect life. That Christ would be willing to die on the cross to satisfy the justice owed as punishment for our sins. That he died as a peace offering and was buried and Christ triumphed over sin and death by physically being resurrected on the third day. And all who trust in him, all who trust in faith are raised to new life in this world and into an everlasting life in the world to come. That's the gospel. And it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that we are perfectly united with our Father and our spiritual family. So we turn to Christ to experience the solidarity of perfect unity here and now. That's all possible for us. That's the power of the cross. We don't have to be divided because of pride. We don't have to shrink back in hopelessness of a broken relationship. We have to tie our well-being to the cross of Jesus because we're all in agreement about that. We are not divided about that. And we're perfectly united in the same mind and the same judgment as our Savior, as a servant, reconciled and restored, and in humility as a result. God's people are not divided. We are not divided. Are you ready to live the life of perfect unity? Let's pray. Father, you sent your Son to redeem us. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for the reconciliation and the restoration that we experience through your son's blood. 
You renew us with your spirit. You unite us with love, God, and I ask that you continue to assure us in faith that our lives may be full of hope, that they may be full in perfect unity. Lord, I ask that those who are still unreconciled with you, who are fighting with their pride, that you send your Holy Spirit and let your spirit dwell in them so that they can be restored to you. Fill us with your spirit's presence. Fill us with your mind. Fill us with your judgment. Lord, the the lives that are scattered by division and dissension, I ask for healing, restoration. God, your perfect unity will be the mark of our discipleship, of following you, and we want to be faithful in that. Sanctify us as we do this, as we live for your name. In Jesus we pray, amen.